This episode has been brought to you by Notion. As a CMO Wild Apricot, I'm constantly asking my team questions like, how much is an email worth? How is that Google AdWords campaign performing? What's the ROI on that webinar we just held? At the business level, I'm asking about other metrics like, what's our CAC payback period? What was our net churn last month? And what was the average deal size for Q3 this year? These questions require multiple inputs from multiple different sources, often involving multiple people who have access in different places. With Notion, you can bring all your data together in one place. It connects with key tools like Jira, Mixpanel, Zendesk, and MailChimp. It allows multiple stakeholders to collaborate to generate key business reports. And most importantly, it gives you one hub for all your business intelligence data so that you always have a pulse on your business. Get started for free at www.usenotion.com. That address again is www.usenotion.com. And now on to the show. You're listening to How to SaaS, the number one podcast to grow your cloud software company with marketing, sales, and customer success in just 10 minutes a day. Each episode will feature a tip, hack, or secret to take your SaaS company to the next level. And now, here's your host and growth strategist, Shiv Narayanan. Hey everybody, welcome to today's episode. We have a really interesting guest for you lined up. His name is Bryce Youngren. He is the managing partner at Polaris Partners. And I actually met him at a conference I spoke at last October and he was actually one of the other speakers. And the topic that he had spoken on was how SaaS companies can expand internationally. And so I wanted to bring him on to do a podcast episode about the same topic. Uh, Bryce's role at Polaris is an interesting one. Polaris is a massive PE and VC firm, so they invest in all kinds of companies early and growth stage. But Bryce's focus is on SaaS and healthcare companies that are particularly in the later stage of their product lifecycle and as a business. So talking about this topic with Bryce is very relevant because he's had a lot of experience trying to find those growth levers as a company hits um, higher stages of maturity. And what's interesting to me about Bryce's perspective is that, you know, as companies mature and you get to, um, let's say the 10 million mark, 25 million mark, well, you need to start becoming creative in terms of how you think about growing your SaaS company. And oftentimes there's, you know, there's the trifecta of finding ways to grow your company. It's either finding new channels, finding new products, or finding new markets. So that's actually an area I want to focus some of our podcast episodes on is we do a lot of episodes for early stage companies or growth stage companies that are trying to find traction or finding ways to improve their acquisition or growth engine. Uh, but we don't do enough episodes on, well, if you're what if you're already a mature company and driving business and, and growing at an awesome rate and, and you have EBITDA? So, well, well, how do you take your company to the next level? Well, that's, that's some of the topics that I want to start touching on. And expanding internationally is one of those topics because every company at some point in their life cycle takes their existing product and says, how can we take this to market in other countries? Because North America is usually the place where a lot of SaaS companies start because the US and Canadian markets are great markets for SaaS companies. But what happens when the time comes to go to the UK or Australia, New Zealand or Asia? Well, how do you do that? There's a lot of factors to keep in mind. There's there's language barriers. There's how do you get the content out there? How do you deal with salespeople? Well, you don't have enough traffic on Google in particular to make Google AdWords work. So what is the play that you use to get to that market? And in the episode, Bryce brings five ways you can actually expand internationally. Number one is through channel partners. And Bryce gives a great example of a company in his portfolio that has managed to do that. Number two is telesales uh, and taking over that SDR to AE model to different markets. And number three is deploying freemium as a way to generate word of mouth and referrals in other markets. 
Number four is local presence uh, with an employee on your team in North America or by hiring someone in that local market. And number five is acquisitions, which is often the most successful way companies find their way into new geographical markets. So we go really deep into all of those. And Bryce has a lot of examples from his portfolio that he brings to the conversation. So I want you to be on the lookout for that because there's a lot of great takeaways for your business that you can probably start applying today. Uh, And that's it, guys. Enjoy the episode. All right, Bryce, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going very well. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Um, so why don't we start off by you giving a little bit of background about yourself, Polaris, and the kinds of companies you guys work with. Sure. I am uh, a managing partner at Polaris. Polaris is a venture capital and private equity firm. We're based in Boston and also have offices in San Francisco and Dublin. Uh, we're investing our eighth fund right now. And we do both early stage and growth stage investments in technology and healthcare companies. And I um, help lead our later stage investment side. So these are companies that are generally at least $5 million in revenues and have generally gotten a profitability. Got it. And these are usually healthcare SaaS companies, right? Uh, these are all kinds of, in my, in my later stage effort, it's later stage technology companies. So it could be any sector of technology, generally SaaS um, also some internet and tech enabled services. Yeah. And that's an important distinction that you mentioned early stage versus late stage, because one of the ways we got hooked up is uh, at Silicon Yale, where you give a presentation on how later stage technology companies can expand globally. So can you, can you go into a little bit about the thinking behind expanding uh, internationally and, and what that looks like? Yeah, sure. The types of companies that we focus on are companies that have established a leadership position in a market subsector. So we have a company that's a leader in um, enterprise asset management for municipalities. And we have a company that's leader in online applications to graduate programs and, and things like that. And we like companies that have shown an ability to win in a market. And then when we invest, a big part of our investment thesis and strategy is to expand their market size. A lot of times the reason they're the leader in their market, they're a leader in their market, but it's often a somewhat small market. Um, and so the key to long-term value creation is give them more market opportunity to go after. And one of the biggest um, ways you can expand your addressable market is to go into international markets. If you look at um, the economy, the U.S. and Canadian economy together are probably about 26% of the global economy. Uh, The EU adds another 22%, and the rest of the world is another 53%. So figuring out a way to address those markets is key. And with the internet and with online software, the ability to do that has, has expanded dramatically. One of the things we looked at is, When Oracle got started, um, when they were five years into their business, they were in two countries, the U.S. and Canada. Um, One of our portfolio companies logged me in five years after founding that business, they were in 200 countries. Because being able to sell online allows you to really address the whole world pretty quickly. It depends on the type of business you're in and whether there's a direct sale involved. But the point is, it is a lot easier to go international today than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so 
the part about expanding market size, do you have uh, an example of a portfolio company where they had a small market in the US or North America and it was necessary to go abroad? Because one of the questions that I guess a lot of companies or founders would have is, do I need to expand internationally or should I focus my attention on North America where, where I already have some kind of a position? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, and there's two things that I'd say about that. Number one is I think you want to show potential acquirers of your business or if you're going to go public, the public markets, you need to demonstrate to them that there is a large market opportunity. And whether you get half your revenues from international markets is not as important as just showing that that opportunity is there. Because even if you um, you know can grow just in the North American market for the next five years, showing people that, th- that there is a market out there is important. And the other thing that we've looked at a lot is copycats come very quickly. So if you just simply ignore the international markets, there are all sorts of, of entrepreneurs and businesses who are specifically looking to copycat North American businesses in Europe and in, uh, in Asia as well. And so if you wait too long, um, someone's going to copycat your business. There's a reason that Uber went so quickly to try and get all over the world because they knew it was a great idea and others would come and copy. And, and you've seen them uh, give up markets. Uh, you know, Diddy and Grab and Ola have all done a great job in those international markets. So I, I think it's important to uh, keep out competitors. Um, and I think it's important to, to for the long-term value of the business. You know, you asked some examples of companies that have gone overseas. You know, we've seen companies go overseas in a variety of different methods. Um, you know, I'll mention a company I'm involved with right now called CityWorks. CityWorks um, has enterprise asset management software primarily for municipalities. They also serve airports and uh, utilities and any place where there's a lot of physical assets over a broad geographic area. And they're now in 10 different international markets. And they have a partnership uh, with a company called Esri that has taken them into all of those markets. And That's the mapping data company, Esri? That's right. That's right. It's kind of a database that runs on top of a mapping platform. Esri is the mapping platform that allows, a, say, a city like Toronto to track where all of their physical assets are, fire hydrants and lampposts and streetlights, et cetera, and keep a good record of... Um, the maintenance history and, and what is where. Mm-hmm. You, you opened up so many different uh, threads there. So let's uh, let's start one by one. So the Uber one in India. Um, Ola has a pretty strong market position there, right? And yeah. the one thing that we've learned from Uber's expansion rapidly across the globe is that it takes a lot of money to expand to international markets, right? So this type of a strategy when you're trying to go to different markets, you need to have the resources and the backing. And so it's not really for all companies, right? So is your recommendation that people wait to a certain stage before they consider something like this? You know, you really do have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Again, I, I think you're right. Uber has spent a lot of money. Um, they're not a software company, right? They are a, a technology-enabled service, and there's a lot of – they've got to spend a lot of money on solving legal hurdles, which exist – not only in every individual country, but in the U.S. in each individual state or city or whatever the case is. And then they've got to spend a lot of money recruiting drivers. You know, the other end of the spectrum would be a um, company we have called Log Me In, which I mentioned at the beginning, that has um, 
a system for online remote access, and they were in 200 countries five years after founding. And how did they do that? They had a freemium model. So you can go online and use their basic service without paying for it. And if you want to get the freemium, the, the uh, extra features, you have to upgrade and pay extra money for that. So um, it was a g- very good idea for them to expand all over the world. It's a product and can be used by anyone. And it didn't cost them any extra money to do that. So you really do have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But it, we have kind of five different strategies for different types of companies, depending on how big their um, you know, ticket price is and other things like that. Right. So, so just to reflect back for the audience is what you're saying is, you know, a, a company like Uber, for them to expand, uh, it's really important to have the self-awareness to know what kind of business you're in. Because for Uber to expand, you do need a lot of money. But a company like LogMeIn can enter new markets through digital channels and the cost is way lower. So an international expansion strategy can make sense earlier in the business life cycle. That's right. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned something there, which is you guys have five uh, dedicated strategies for international expansion. So let's walk the audience through that. Yeah, sure. So the five are, I'll just list them off and then we can go into as much detail as you want. Channel partners, telesales, freemium, establishing a local presence, and then making acquisitions. Okay. And so let's start with channel partners. How would a company go about doing that? And when is it a right time to consider that? And what do you have an example of that one in particular? Yeah, sure. CityWorks, I think, is the best example there. Um, I think when it makes sense is when it is easy for partners to sell and when it's a complementary product. You know, the best case is when it's simply an add-on. You see some products where it's simply a check the box. You're going to buy this big product check the box if you want, um, you know, maybe it's cash register functionality or, or um, you know, other thing, a, a sharing capability, a storage capability, something like that that's really an add-on. And so in the case of CityWorks, um, cities often buy Esri software to do mapping for their municipality uh, where they, they, you know, put in all the information about their streets, et cetera. This is an add-on product that would go on top of that for them to track their physical assets. They might buy an add-on product to track um, you know, where police incidents have happened. They might buy an add-on product to track um, homelessness, other things like that. This one is specifically for physical assets. And so it's, it's easy for Esri to recommend, if you want to track your physical assets, this is a great product to do it with. And we have a relationship where they get compensated for doing that. Um, so again, I think the keys to success there are to make it simple to sell, you know, where the partner doesn't have to do very much to sell it. Add-ons are the best. There needs to be a path for the partner firm to, uh, make a lot of money, have a, a, an economic deal that makes sense for them. And then only to pick partners where there's going to be a significant commitment on both sides. You, you want to see a partner who's willing to invest marketing dollars, willing to invest time, because you are going to have to do that as well. That's a that's a great example. And so basically what you're saying is CityWorks is making a deal with us. You're saying every time you sell CityWorks as an add-on to these uh, municipalities or cities, when and our product is what you add on, you get a cut of whatever we're selling. And the incentive is big enough that S3 is including it into their channel sales. 
That's exactly right. They've got representatives in most countries throughout the world. We never, and, and they have relationships with the decision makers in these municipalities. That's something we could never duplicate. And from their standpoint, it's very easy for them to say, if you need an enterprise asset management system, we recommend CityWorks. Um, if the municipality buys it, they get you know a nice amount of money and don't have to do any, any work for it. Mm-hmm. And the big benefit to CityWorks is then to expand internationally. You don't have to go out and build out that sales force that Esri has already been investing in. So you're kind of piggybacking on that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Awesome. What's, uh, what's number two? Uh, so number two is telesales. And um, obviously telesales is very popular across North America today. It's not that hard to uh, expand that to the UK and, and when you add the language capabilities into the rest of Europe. Um, and what you need there when it makes sense is when you have products that are relatively simple products to sell that you can demo online um, and don't generally require an in-person sale. If it doesn't require an in-person sale in the U.S. or Canada, then it shouldn't uh, in the U.K. or Australia, whatever the case is. And I think the keys to success are, number one, really building a strong marketing engine to generate warm leads. And, Shiv, I know that's something where you're an expert um, but, uh, you know, you, would like to have as many inbound leads as possible. And right. if you build a good online presence with the right drip email campaign and the right content, hopefully you get warm leads coming in from all over the world. Um, I think you really need to track the close rate of your leads and your teleprofessionals, your, your telesales professionals, and really be tweaking all the time based on what leads close and what leads don't, what telesales people work and what people don't and, and working that way. And then, you know, you have to hire, I, I think we generally try and start by hiring dual language professionals in the U.S. Um, before building a team overseas. So there's no reason you can't hire someone who's Spanish speaking in the U.S., have them work a little bit off hours. Once you have a good number of clients in Spain, then think about adding a uh, a tail sales presence there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The language part is something I wanted to ask you about later, but uh, let's let's discuss that because the model you're talking about about there is like a BDR or SDR to AE model, um, or inbound leads that are being passed off to the SDR. It, language is really important, not just for the SDR, but then it almost requires a dedicated strategy. Uh, from a marketing perspective, because your collateral now needs to be, let's say, in Spanish, yeah. or from a support perspective, where your support rep needs to be able to speak that language. It's really an overall business strategy to say we uh, we need to uh, adopt our product and our service for for this language, which might even mean software changes. Yep, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the challenges that we have at Wild Africa, for example, is that our architecture is built in a way where adapting to a different language is difficult, but that's also an engineering thing, right? Where you set up your software in a way where maybe you might be, you might have a framework where it's easier to change language across the product versus versus having to go into deep development mode to develop for a new market. Yep. And I, and I think you, you know, you tend to do it in stages. You start by going into the UK is where everyone seems to start. And then maybe you pick, France next. And so you, you only have to develop for one language. 
um, and then you can build from there. And a lot of people do start with France because we've seen a lot of our companies expand into Canada and then you end up in Eastern Canada. And so you have to have French language capabilities there. And, and then you can use that, uh, you know, I have a Canadian investment and they went to France next because we had to develop everything for uh, the Quebec region. Right, right. Once one strategy we've used at Wild Apricot is um, go after all the English speaking countries. So uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, etc, where we can run pay per click campaigns on Google, where people are still searching in English, and that lets yeah. us still drive lead gen. Um, and before I move on to the next one, just another topic I wanted to touch on with this uh, language piece is another dimension is the legal side. Because, for example, in the UK, uh, when we're serving nonprofits, we have a challenge that um, their associations require that their servers can't be hosted in a country outside the UK. So, like, what about legal challenges when going when expanding internationally? Yeah, I think. Um... Amazon, AWS, and Microsoft Azure are making that a lot easier these days. It's, it's, our companies have found it fairly easy to just move the content, move a copy of, of um, the technology to a AWS data center in the UK and host it there. But that, that is certainly something that's uh, rapidly evolving. But other things like compliance uh, with other laws, not just where data centers are housed, like are those challenges that you guys come up upon often? Um, they are, they are. And, and usually we have to get, um, you know, I think if you get a good UK council, they generally have been able to advise us on issues we might run into in France or Germany or Spain, et cetera. Right. And that's where someone, uh, like Polaris and you guys can really help because you have that experience and those connections. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go to number three. Uh, yeah. So number three is freemium. And that generally uh, makes sense when it's products targeting the SMB and consumer market. It, it needs to be a, a very simple kind of uh, easy to use product. Uh, keys to success there are you need an upgrade path that has clearly communicated benefits. Um, you need to be very strategic about targeting upgrade offers at power users. You should be able to track who's using the product a lot and, um, and do a lot in terms of uh, uh, sending messages to those power users. And then you have to be constantly evaluating the feature split between what's in free and what's in premium. You want enough in free that people enjoy the product and people use it and it, and it becomes part of their day-to-day -day life or business process. Um, but you can't have too much because you want a lot in the, in the premium products so they feel obligated upgrade. And I think as you're coming out with new features and functionality, you're constantly having to, to tweak how much of it is free and how much it, you have to pay for. And so our example there, again, is a company called LogMeIn that has uh, a SaaS solution for memory access, and they also have a product for online meetings. And they have customers today in virtually every country. And their success rate has been, I think it's about 6-7% of um, free users upgrade to premium. But because they have virtually no sales and marketing expense, or you know, very little sales and marketing expense, that number works. They've been able to drive a business that's worth many billions of dollars today. I think it's 5 or $6 billion today um, based on that strategy. 
That's interesting. And the go-to-market there with these kinds of products is exactly what? Because, you know, you have the free-to-paid path, but how how does a business like that? Because you can't rely on, on sales here. So what is the go-to-market? Um, you know, with them, there, there has been a little bit of online marketing, but a lot of it has been word of mouth that people say, hey, have you heard about this free product you can use to do remote access? And that, that generates a lot of buzz. Right, right. Yeah, um, I see some parallels here with our business. We're not as, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what their ACV is, but we're pretty small in terms of our annual contract value too. And going to an international market is just a matter of finding the right content and things people are searching for in those countries. But we have found some challenges, like for example, expanding to Spain, like not as many people are looking for membership management software, which would be a keyword that we advertise for, right? So so it's a challenge to find the right go-to-market strategy that can actually help you scale yeah but the word of word of mouth definitely helps in terms of um what do, you, what do you say to the idea that a lot of these companies you know there's there's multiple ways to expand your company once you reach a certain level of maturity like you can go to a new channel you can go to a new market or you can even create a new product that helps you upsell and cross sell to your customers right so what what how do you define d- decide when that right chance is because just as valuable as for example wild africa going to a new market could be to create a second software to offer our customer base yeah sure i think that's um, something we at polaris spent a lot of time on and you try to help the companies with just the analytics around that because you're right in any company there are probably 15 good ideas and you can only do two or three at a time effectively and I think it's just a matter of gathering as much information as possible and then trying to boil that down into a spreadsheet where you say, here's what we think it's going to cost to develop this product or to move overseas or whatever the case is to develop this new uh, line of customers. And here's what we think the range of outcomes in future years in terms of revenues and profits can be. And so we really try, I think companies often aren't as analytical as they should be. You know, they're often run by gut instinct and sometimes gut instinct is the best way to make decisions. But I think gut instinct paired with analytics is the right way to do it. Right, right. That's that's great, great advice. I think a lot of businesses um, could benefit from the just the modeling aspect of what is what is the investment required? What is the horizon to make that money back? And, you know, what's the likelihood of success uh, of the initiative? Yeah, and I think when, when people actually take the time to do that, to really put it down in a spreadsheet, you, you are more thoughtful about all the costs that it will require to do this right. How much is it going to cost to develop the product, really? How long is that going to take, really? What is the marketing investment that needs to be made? What is the language, you know, investment if, if you're talking about another country? You know, all those types of things. You've really got to be diligent about um, making sure you're including everything that it's going to take to be successful. Right. And you can't drop your current operations while you're doing all of this, right? So the risk right. factoring in that aspect. No, and that's, and that's one of the biggest costs is simply time. Yeah, and distraction. Yeah, time and distraction. A management team can only focus on so many things at a time. Right, right. Awesome. Uh, what's uh, number four? Um, so number four is establishing a local presence. Uh, and when this makes sense is generally when there are larger ticket items 
that have a long direct sales cycle. Uh, so this is things where if it's a, if it's a big enough ticket item, if it's an ACV of you know fifty thousand plus, and we've got a lot of companies where their ACV is anywhere from fifty thousand to a million, um, you're probably going to need a direct sales team on the ground talking to customers, building a pipeline, and taking six to twelve months to close deals. If that's the case, you need to set up a local presence. Um, and we think that generally is best to start with a professional from your headquarters that is a country native. So, you know, the ideal situation is if we wanted to expand into France and we had a French native in our U.S. or Canadian office that we could then send back to France. I think that's the ideal situation. And if you're planning ahead of time, a lot of times you can um, you can work towards it. You can hire someone with the thought that you might want to send them overseas in a couple of years. And especially, you know, younger people often love the idea of uh, moving to another country for a couple of years. I sure would if I was 28 again. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. You know, and, and so I think that's number one. I think number two, you've obviously got to localize the product before market entry. And um, you've got to be thoughtful about that. And, you know, we've seen a lot of instances where people make mistakes in how they word things and, and didn't have the right um, support or people to figure that out. Um, and then I think, lastly, ideally, you win a customer in the target country before opening an office. So if we could win a customer in France before we sent someone to France, that way, when the person gets on the ground, they have a reference customer to talk about and a, a reference to give to people um, when they're talking to them to say, you're not going to be the first. We already have someone here. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice because my, my main question was going to be, what is what is piloting this or testing this look like, right? Because you could have somebody in HQ who could serve that market, but you know, getting one reference customer is a great insight. And my second part of that would be, uh, when you go out and try to get reps for that country, are you starting with that person that's already in HQ or are you trying to get that person in HQ to still find some sort of uh, lead gen or SDR type of help on the ground? I'll give you an example we have in our portfolio. It's a Canadian company called Strata Health and Strata is based in Calgary and uh, they had again expanded across Canada, um, had customers in most of the provinces and one of our um, salespeople is a French native who was living in Montreal. And um, we had already expanded into the UK and thought um, we wanted to get into the continental Europe. And um, France seemed like the place for us to start because, again, we already had our product written in French for the Eastern Canadian market. And uh, this particular gentleman was excited to have the opportunity to move back to France, you know, and we paid him more money to do that and set him up with an office and there was a promotion for him. So that's how we did it. And that's worked out very well in that particular company's case. And so in that case, was that person the one pursuing deals, finding leads and all that? Or did you guys scale up the office right away as well? Uh, no, he was. He really started as a one-man band. Got it. Um, you know, this is a kind of product where there isn't 
tens of thousands of potential customers, there's probably a hundred in the country of France. And so it's the, the, the customer potential customer list is easily identifiable. Right. So this is how like uh, companies end up having country managers and you know, you put someone up and then they slowly build up the office as you add clientele. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Number five. Yeah. So the last one is acquisitions. And um, this is frankly probably been the most successful strategy for us um, because it does take a lot of effort to build up um, the market know-how, the market relationships, the people, everything like that. It can take a long time to build all that. And so it's a lot easier if you can just acquire a company in a particular country or region and then go from there. Um, and so, you know, when does it make the most sense when there's, when there are already strong local players and when the enter barriers are high? And I think the keys to success are to test it with a potential partnership prior to an acquisition. Maybe you can work together and work on a few deals together. Uh, a lot of planning in terms of how you merge product offerings and merge cultures. And uh, really appoint dedicated integra integration professionals. So people who their full-time job is to work on integration. Because a lot of times you end up with companies who try and do part of the CFO's time, part of the CEO's time, part of everyone's time, that doesn't work as well as having one person really committed. Can you, can you give an example here? Yeah, the best example I have is uh, we had a company called eRewards, which was an online market research company. So they had about 6 million people who would agree to take market research surveys online. And um, market research had moved very quickly from being phone-based to being based online. And uh, the founder of that, Hal Brierley, was a, a genius in loyalty programs. It really created the loyalty industry. It created American Airlines Advantage and Hilton Honors and all these other loyalty programs. And then uh, used those members to create this online market research panel. And we were by far the dominant provider in the US and Canada. And we opened an office in the UK and spent two years and about $4 million and got nowhere. And it was just a complete failure. We couldn't make any progress. We ended up buying a company called Research Now, who has a presence in about 38 countries. Um, and it was a match made in heaven. We were immediately had our superior panel and panel creation capabilities matched with their presence in 38 countries. And, um, you know, the business really worked both ways. We had U.S. customers who wanted panelists across the world, across Europe and the rest of the world to be answering these market research panels, these market research surveys. Um, and then vice versa, they had research now had customers in France and Germany and Spain and Italy who needed, uh, market research completed in the U S and we could do that. And so that company grew from 25 million in revenues to about 375 million in revenues very quickly as a direct result of that acquisition. Wow. 
That's incredible. And I was actually going to mention that, which is from all the five strategies you listed, a few of them really require you to, the local presence or even the uh, the telesales side. It's almost like building a business from scratch. You're building a new business arm and uh, geographically certain markets can behave differently because of cultural differences or language differences. And it's a big challenge, but this kind of a strategy seems to have far less uh, risk. And this is one where it is um, helpful to have a private equity partner. First of all, most companies don't have an extra 10 or 20 or $30 million sitting <laughs> right. around and go buy companies. Right. Um, and they also don't have dedicated professionals on staff who do nothing for a living but buy companies. And where we've seen the best opportunities come along is where a company kind of decides they are going to consider acquisitions and then start to um, source opportunities. Uh, one of our companies, TRG, you know, started talking to their customer advisory council about some of the markets they wanted to expand, expand into. And one of the members of that council came and said, you really should take a look at this company called Priory, which is based in the UK. And um, we would have never found Priory on our own, but they made a warm introduction to us. And it's been a, it's been a match made in heaven. I love it. That's a really good takeaway. Um, this is this is really good sharing. And if I could summarize just all the the five areas that you're you've mentioned here, like number one, we have channel partners. Uh, number two is telesales. Number three is freemium. Number four, local presence, and number five, acquisitions. Um, you mentioned one failure here with this company in the UK. Uh, that was my last question. Here is like, what what are what are some things that have gone wrong? Uh, with some of these uh, uh, international expansion strategies? And what would you recommend to someone considering this as to how, how do they pick which is the right one for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you need to look at, you know, the, the kind of descriptors that I gave. Do you have a product that's, you know, partnerships are probably the best place to always start. And you need to decide if yours is a product that can be sold by partners because some products just can't, especially if they're uh, more expensive products with a higher ACV. Uh, I think if you're doing telesales in the U.S., absolutely look at doing telesales overseas and, and start that sooner rather than later. We have a company called Profitero uh, is now in about 50 different countries using telesales and they they figured out a model that worked in the u.s and they expanded that overseas you know freemium again that's going to be a very specific type of company that has a uh, a low-end offering that's um, very broadly applicable to uh, most of the economy um, local presence i think is the last choice you do if you have no other choice strata the example I gave there, there just wasn't anyone to buy in Europe. It was too expensive to be sold by partners. You could never sell it um, over the phone. And then acquisitions, I think it's just something you keep, you should always be keeping an eye out for acquisitions that could make sense. That, that may be, that, that applies to international expansion, but it also applies into moving into other industry verticals and to adding new products. It's great to be able to find a product that you can sell into your existing customer base. And acquisitions are a great way to do that as well. 
that is a great summary, man. Thank you very much for doing that. Um, and last but not least, I just want to thank you for doing this interview. I think uh, the content has been very helpful for the audience, and I want to appreciate you for sharing your expertise with us here. Well, I appreciate the uh, offer to come on uh, your program. Thanks, Bryce. See you later. Okay, take care. That's it for today's episode, guys. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes and to check us out at www.hattasass.com. And we will see you next time.